Greetings in Jesus' name, and I welcome each and every one of you to the service here today. Uh, as we look at God's Word and what He has for us, uh, this morning I'm going to share from Ecclesiastes again. And uh, last last time I shared shared from uh, chapter three, and I'll I'll be really honest with you. I don't want this to sound like today I'm not looking forward to it, but I really enjoyed chapter three. I've always enjoyed that passage of scripture where there's a time to uh, uh, see a time for every season, a time to be born, a time to die, and such like. And uh, really enjoyed that part of it. One thing I would would like to us to remember, and he starts there in chapter three when he talks about the different times and the different seasons and the different cycles of life. Um, and as we talked last time a little bit, is we talked about. Um, the whole attitude of our life. What are we doing with our time of living, a time of mourning, a time of healing, a time of dying, all these other times? And I asked you the question last time, and I had a couple stories there, of how we handle life, of the, the elderly gentleman who sat down in the aisle with the young man so he wouldn't be alone, and such like. But as we look at chapters 3, 4, and 5, um, Solomon's point in these sections is that God has a plan for all people. Thus, he provides cycles of life, each with its work for us to do. Though we, though we may face barriers and problems along the way, those should not be barriers to believing in him, but rather opportunities to discover that without God, life Life's issues have no lasting solutions. So I'd like us to think about this. As we study the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes, we've talked a lot about vanity. And I do believe in 3, 4, and 5, he is, uh, he is giving us an idea that God has a plan for you and I. And that was the, the way we took chapter 3 last time. And I'd like us to, as we... As we look at 4 and 5, and I'm going to be jumping through them, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not going to try to hit every verse. Uh, I hope it actually stimulates enough thought that you go home and study it, because Ecclesiastes is, is full of, uh, how do you say, wisdom, and uh, kind of the reality of a life. Here again, I think Solomon is sitting on his back porch at an older age, looking back, saying, what did this accomplish me? So I want us to look at it because I think there's a lot of wisdom in these next couple chapters of how uh, God has a plan for, for us today. Um, like I said, I, I hope that it, it, you don't, uh, I guess, think I'm going to cover this extensively. If it was, our lunch would be burned until I got done. So I am going to pick out a few pieces and, uh, and we're going to look at them together here this morning. I'd like to, first of all, chapter 4, Ecclesiastes 4, the chap, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful, a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. As I was looking at Ecclesiastes 4, 
these caught my eye. Because once again, Solomon has given us the contrast of being probably what you would say a workaholic or being lazy. And I find it very interesting. He says, um, sometimes when somebody is very skillful in what they do, it brings envy to somebody else. And I find that so very intriguing in life because there are, there are people who, when they look around and they, they find something that somebody does, they envy that person instead of saying, what can I learn? And I ask you that question. If, you're just, if we're sitting here in envy and then we say, I can't do that as good as Ellis can do it or I can't do that as good as Aaron can do that, then I just won't do anything at all. And I will sit here in, in verse uh, 5. He says, they fold their hands, which is do nothing, and it consumes his own flesh. So they become extremely lazy. They just do nothing at all. And, I, and I, I warn us as Christians and as believers in Jesus Christ that both the person who is so driven that it is all about work, that it is all about what I can amass, everything I can do is about what I can get, is, no, is all vanity if you're grasping for that wind. If you are trying to work to outbetter your neighbor, if you are trying to do something just simply for your own sake. Or if you're sitting there saying, I just can't keep up. I'm just going to fold my hands and sit down and do nothing. Both of them are vanity. And I like that parallel. Because unfortunately in life, we can take either approach. Or I shouldn't say unfortunately. We can take either approach in life. And unfortunately, both of them is not right. Hit some interesting themes here that he weaved together. Hard work and success are good, but not to be envied. Laziness is wrong and destructive. And then in the last verse, yet even the ones with full hands need to learn to be content. He says, even a handful. So you have the empty hands and the guy that just sits back and does nothing. And laziness will destroy you and it will destroy those that depend on you. If we are not willing to pick up our pieces and do what God has called us to do, it will destroy. If you take that in materialistic things, if you are too lazy to work, your children will suffer. You will not have enough food to eat. If you are, if, but if we take that spiritually and we become lazy and we just sit there and we just live, it will destroy our families. So I guess as I bring this, I brought this out today because as we study Ecclesiastes, so many times he talks about all this materialism. And he says it's all vanity. Well, then let's do nothing. How about that? Well, I think there's a balance in between. And in verse 6, he says, better a handful with quietness. And I do believe what he is, he is meaning there in quietness is he is saying no matter what you got going, no matter how full your hands are, no matter if you're just running around beating the clock or trying to beat the clock, and the clock beats you. I don't know if anybody else has days like that, but I do. I have days where the clock definitely goes faster than I can even somehow figure out how to muster. But he says be content. Contentment with quietness. And contentment is something that has intrigued me for years. And I understand that contentment is something where um, 
it's an attitude because you can be a multimillionaire and be a content person or you can be broke and be a content person. The amount of money you have does not determine your contentness. Your heart condition does. And I believe as God's people, we can be a content person. That doesn't mean we sit back and watch the world go by. That doesn't mean we envy the neighbor. That means we don't fold our hands and become lazy. But are we content with what God has done in this life that we live? Jumping ahead, verse 9. We're reading for verse 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. For he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cold is not quickly broken. I'm not going to take apart every ounce of every verse there. I do, I think there's so much wisdom in them three or four verses. And I got a story that I found by Jeff Streit. I'd like to share it here this morning. Back in 1957, the First Brethren Church of Sarasota, Florida had a groundbreaking service. But instead of having a couple of shovels that special people would use to dig up a little sod, they brought in an old one-horse plow. And recalling the words of Jesus, take my yoke upon you, they borrowed an old yoke and hitched up two of their youngest and strongest members. And these men pulled and tugged and strained, but the two young men were unable to pull the plow. Then the entire building committee grabbed hold of the rope, and they pulled and tugged and strained. But even they couldn't get the plow to move. Next, other church officers grabbed the rope along with the Sunday school teachers, and they all pulled and tugged and strained, but still the plow wouldn't move. Finally, every person in the congregation that was present took hold of the rope, and with everyone pulling together, the plow moved, and the ground was broken to build the church. And I'm sure you know exactly where I'm going with that story. I'd like to turn to Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, and I'm just going to read them a couple verses and make a couple statements. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And I would like to take these verses in Ecclesiastes that Solomon has wrote in here, written here about being a help, helping one another, picking somebody up. A two-fold rope, or two people can fight off somebody that would overtake the one. A three-cord three rope is strong rope. And also then in Hebrews there, where, where we read, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some, but exhorting one another, especially as the day approaches. And I'd like to encourage us as we look at those verses to find the community in our church, in our churches. Because we need each other. You know, it's becoming popular that we don't need anybody. We're individuals. Individualism. You do what you do, I do what I do, and it's all okay. 
But I'm going to encourage you. I don't think that's the biblical way. When he talks about it in Hebrews there, he says that you still assemble because you need each other to encourage each other. And I believe that in uh, Ecclesiastes here, when he says the, the, the title of my uh, Bible here in these verses says the value of a friend. And I think unfortunately, maybe we take it for granted too many times. I believe that we need each other as we walk this journey together. We need to be involved in a group of people that know that that person's going to have our back, if you can say it that way. That when we're hurting, somebody's going to come over and put their arm around us. When we have go through a tough time, somebody's going to care enough to care. I don't want to rain on Norman's uh, sermon last week when he shared, shared about sharing, uh, bearing each other's burdens. But I was so blessed by that. And when I was rolling through Ecclesiastes, it hit me. That's exactly what he's talking about. Two are better than one. So I ask you this question is, do you want to be part of that? Do you want to be part of the journey of life that is strong for Jesus Christ? Do we want to be part of a group who cares for one another? Do we want to be part of something who, when someone is hurting, they will show up and care? I know as you guys know, you as a church did that for us this last year with the passing of mom and different things in our life. There was never a doubt that somebody cared for us. But I believe that's exactly what he's talking about. Two are stronger than one. Do you want to be part of that? I believe that as believers, we should be looking out for the betterment of someone else instead of the betterment of ourselves. Unfortunately, the way the world is going, and I, and I read this, this stat, I did not jot it down, but since 2000 to 2020, in that 20 years, they now say in America, only one of four people are professing Christians. And they call anybody that's a professing Christian is anybody who says that their faith matters to them, and they attend a church somewhere once a month. So that's all it takes to call yourself a professing Christian. I find that very sad, because if you attend a church once a month, how, how involved are you? Will anybody know when you fell to help pick you up? Will you be able to help pick somebody else up if we don't plug in to a local body of believers? So I just encourage us, as we look at life, and as we look at uh, walking this road, when Solomon talks about this, the value of friends, to plug in. Are we willing to open up our life to someone else or give to someone or be accountable? Are we willing to serve? Jeff Strike shared this meme and I thought it was so funny. Or not funny, but kind of true. He says, now this uh, young man looks at mama and he goes, now mama, you don't have to go to church to go to heaven. Mama replies, well, you don't have to wear a parachute to jump out of an airplane either, but it certainly helps. And I know that's maybe a little humor, but I, I think there's some truth to that. What are you plugging yourself into? Verses 13 through 16 in chapter 4. Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in, the, in his kingdom. I saw the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. 
there was no end of all the people over whom he, has, he was made king. Yet those who come forward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And this one here I've got entitled Popularity and Fame. And how short-lived popularity and fame is. Getting to the top. Living the American dream. Getting on top of my industry. The best of the best. Being the most popular person I can be. Getting prestige over someone else. If those are our goals in life, they are very poor goals for your life. Fame will disappear. Fame will go away. Popularity will disappear. In a heartbeat. You look back at life, and you can look at the best of the best, and in almost a blink of an eye, in a very short time, that fame is gone. That popularity is gone. And yet, it intrigues us. It intrigues us. But I think his very point here is so valid, is it passes away, and it's vanity, like a grasping of the wind, like a, like a vapor. Some become so popular, maybe fast, maybe slow. So I ask us a question. Maybe we're not popular. Maybe we don't think we are. But do we idolize those that the world says are? Do we look to those for opinions or cares or how they are? I ask you why. Think about it a little bit. Because I believe in our, in our world here today that if we look after the popular, we will be let down. If we follow their styles, fads, and traditions, whatever it is, I'm not here to pick on one thing today, but I'm just saying is if we follow that popularity and that fame and that whole, that whole rigmarole of life, we will be heartbroken at the end. The only thing that really matters is what we do for Jesus Christ and those around us. You know, we just came through the campaign season again. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad it's over. I get absolutely weary of all the commercials and the trashing and, and the putting down of somebody else for my own benefit and my own glory. Yet we say that's in the world, and I hope it is. I hope it's not in the church. But is it in the church? There's nothing wrong with being truthful. There's nothing wrong with caring for somebody. There's nothing wrong with sharing of need or a care for a brother and asking for help. But are we, just, are we willing to put somebody else down because it makes us look a little bit better in our churches today? Does fame do us a bit of good in 100 years from now? Moving to chapter 5 here this morning, I'd like to read the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 5. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hasty before God. For God is in heaven, and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Nor say before the messenger of God, 
that it was in error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. But fear God. I'd like us to, to the whole concept here of worship. And what I'd like us to think about, just a few moments of time here this morning, is walk prudently when you go to the house of God. And I know in the Old Testament that meant the temple. And I know that things are a little different in the New Testament. But I do believe when we come to worship, we should have the same reverence and the same care and the same attitude. In 1 Kings 8, 22 through 24, I'm not going to read it, but it says, God's glory filled the temple, and Solomon responded in honoring God. He responded in humble adoration of his God and his Lord and his Savior. We read in Mark 11 how Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he had just driven out the thieves. He said, You've made it a den of thieves. He said, You've made it. You've destroyed the temple of God. Because it's a house of prayer. And I do believe here, Solomon, in his, in his practical wisdom of a plan for our life, he says, you know, we just went through some of these other things, and then he says, life is about worship. So I've got a couple questions for you today. Do we show care? Do we walk prudently when we come to the house of God? When we come to worship... Do we walk in a prudent manner? Do we come with a humble heart before God? Or is it something we do because what would the neighbors say if I don't go to church? I know he talks about the rash of our mouth and utter hasty. He says it's better to hear than to sacrifice the fools. And I think what he's meaning there is he said, you can bring the biggest sacrifice, you can bring the biggest, fattest, best cow in the country and give it to you, but if your heart ain't right... And you're not going to go to listen to God, what God has for you to worship, then it's a joke. So amongst that prefaces, I'd like us to think about a few things here this morning. How do we come to worship? How do we come? Do we come to hear? Do we come to pray? Have we prepared our heart? Fruitful and acceptable worship begin before it begins. I found that on Enduring Word, and the name beside it was, was a McLaren, so that's, that's the reference I got. His statement was, fruitful and acceptable worship begin before it begins. But that really convicted me. There is a huge difference between attending church and worshiping. There's a huge difference between showing up and sitting in a pew than there is between worshiping our Lord and Savior. Verse 7, it says, but fear God. I don't think we're scared to come to church. I don't think we're scared of our God. But I think we need to come with a reverence and an awe for who God is. I think it should, it should in a sense, you could say it makes you shiver. Because of God, the magnitude and the awe and the awesomeness of God. I just, I, I was thinking about this whole thing of coming together to worship with other believers. And does that really go through us? Are we excited to worship? Or, as I mentioned earlier, 
Somebody might see me if I stay home and then they'd wonder what I'm doing. Somebody's going to wonder where I've been if I don't show up. I think that's sad. I think we should have a heart to worship our Lord and Savior, to come before him with praise and admiration. Got a question for you. If you prepared the same way that you prepare to come to church, if you prepared the same way to do your job, how much would you get paid? One bigger question, would you even have a job? If you were sitting in the job force, by 9.30 you were asleep, hadn't done a lick of work to come, you forgot all your tools, you showed up, you fumbled around and you wanted it to end, what would you get paid? Maybe that's not a fair check. But I asked myself that question. That's where I went with me on my heart. Because I prepare to go to the field. I prepare to harvest corn. I prepare for everything else I do or else I lose money. But when I come to worship my Lord and Savior, if I prepared my heart on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, or do I just somehow slop a little water on my face, comb my hair and show up at church and hope something good happens and I went home, check that one off for the week. What are you doing to worship your Lord and Savior? And I know it's not just Sunday. I believe we should come to God in worship throughout the week. So we're prepared to hear what God has for us. The rest of chapter 5, I'm going to hit a couple verses here. Verse 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. Hmm. Nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Verse 14. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. I'm not going to dwell on this because I've talked about this a couple times ago about the, the materialistic gain. I think Solomon, in the end of all his practical wisdom here, and he's sharing, he's saying, you know, in verse chapter 3, he says, there's a time for this and time for that. What are you doing with the time God has given you? Then we have uh, numerous other things come about here, but he says, the value of a friend, the value about people who care for you. And he says, uh, the value of work, the value of worship, the value of popularity, it fades. He goes back to almost where he starts, and he says... The accumulation of wealth and riches, misfortune could take it all away. It's gone overnight. Shared that last time too about the amount of lottery winners who within four or five years were dead broke. Millions squandered within a couple years. And I think that's how he kind of ends that down there. So I got a question. In verse 19, though, I will share that one. As for every, every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and, re and receive in his labor, this is the gift of God. And in a nutshell, are you grateful for the fact that you have something to eat and you have somewhere to be? And do we call that a gift of God? Or do we look in the mirror and say, see what I've earned? There's a different attitude there. Are we living a grateful life for what God is giving us? Are we content? Or are we chasing riches, fame, and glory? I'd like you to ask yourself that question. The second one I have for you today. Are we here to be a part of worship? And are we working 
together to honor our Lord and Savior. What is our motive of survival? I think in Ecclesiastes, these last couple chapters, he gives us a real couple things that we can hang our hat on if we want to live a purposeful life. May God bless you.